Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. Good to see you. My name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to be back after being away last week on vacation. So let's get started. Genesis 19, if you have a Bible, please open it to Genesis 19. If you don't have a Bible, as always, I'd love for you to use one of the ones in the rack in front of you. Maybe you forgot yours today, or maybe you don't own a Bible, and uh, we would love for you to take that Bible that's in the chair rack in front of you and keep that as your own, our gift to you. I think you'd be helped if you just opened it to Genesis 19, which in those Bibles in front of you, you can find on page 10 or 13, depending on which copy it is. Just keep that open to Genesis 19 and follow along, uh, and and I think you'd be helped to, to pay attention and see God's Word. And as you're finding that, let me just mention a couple little things. Let me piggyback on on uh, what Robert just mentioned is that uh, first, before I do that, I want to say thanks to, to Will uh, for preaching. I listened to his message. I was, as always, super encouraged. And he mentioned to, at the beginning of his message last week on Genesis 18 to pray for me. We had a great vacation. Thank you for that. It was good to see my folks. Uh, our family took up a whole aisle in the plane. Um, so that was fun. And our kids now can actually fly to California, and there's no, like, craziness, you know, so it was actually, we're growing up, it's really, and we were sitting by this family, they had these young babies that were screezing, screaming their head off, and Jennifer and I were looking at each other, like, remember those days, <laughs> so uh, praise God, had a wonderful time, it's good to be back home, though, now, um, but pray for Will, uh, he is, uh, spent this weekend away at seminary, he and Robert are both going to seminary, uh, pursuing their Masters of Divinity up at uh, Reformed Theological Seminary, uh, campus up in Atlanta, great school. And then he's going to vacation uh, with, with his family to the beach. And then um, when he comes back, going straight to the Uganda youth mission trip. So a busy couple weeks for the Hawk family. And then let me also mention a little bittersweet. You know, we were, you need to, ES, you need to, you need to um, RSVP to Rachel Gibbs if you're coming to the Midweek Fellowship. Well, this week is Rachel's last uh, week at Crosspoint as our administrative assistant. In fact, this is her last Sunday. Um, she is moving to Texas. Her and her husband are here because of the United States Army. And Chris is um, very likely going to be getting out of the Army, and he's going to be doing a job this next year that's going to have him away a lot. And so Rachel is moving uh, ahead to Texas and is taking a job there. And Rachel has served us like super duper well this past year or so and we will we will dearly miss her so um uh yeah so email her but then next week don't email her uh but um we we love rachel where are you i'm gonna embarrass you just where, where there she is right there yeah raise your hand a little bit higher and there's chris right next to her her husband uh, just a lo- just we love our military folks so grateful for them and uh, we we love you and we're gonna miss you uh, you've served us well the second, third thing I want to mention, just I want to piggyback on what Robert has said about the one another meeting tonight. I'd love for you to come. I'm, I'm going to be cryptic and disguised here, and it's all good, but I'm just going to kind of like, ooh, what's going on? We have some important things to share tonight, which are, I, I think, really good news. 
Um, and so if you are a member of Crosspoint um, or you're considering making this your home church, we'd love for you to come tonight. There's going to be some, uh, I think, exciting things that we're going to put before you that we need you to know about and to consider. And so please do come tonight. If you haven't come to, if you're, if you're a member of Crosspoint and you've never been to one of these meetings, uh, really, I'd encourage you to come tonight. tonight. Tonight would be a good night to come. And maybe you've got kids or something like that, and maybe just one spouse could come then that's great, and husband or wife can fill in the other one, but tonight would be a great, great night to come. And before we read the text and pray, as I was able to just kind of unplug from the regular rhythm of church life this past couple weeks going to California and just kind of plug into the world around me and news and, you know, I mean, how many bean burritos can you eat in El Central California? Um, We had them for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Uh, and in between that time, we'd just sit around and watch Sports Center and the news with my dad and, you know, fix the world's problems. Um, we, and we, we got a lot accomplished on that front, by the way. Uh, just kind of, just more than usual, just burdened for uh, the world and our country. There's a couple things that have just been heavy in my heart. Just this issue of what's going on in the Middle East and how Israel is, is being uh, seemingly again... Uh, you know, molested by these terrorist neighbors. We need to pray for the situation in Israel and the peace of Israel. Pray that these evil uh, people that want to destroy Israel would be thwarted and stopped. And in that, we pray for God's work amongst uh, these evil people, these Arabs, that they would come to Christ. We pray for Israel, not just for their... We mentioned this a couple weeks ago. Friends, Israel's hope is not political peace. Israel's hope is not the UN, and Israel's hope is not all of their Arab uh, nations around them recognizing them. That may be a good political temporary goal. I'm not saying we shouldn't work for those things, but Israel's hope is Christ. Israel needs Jesus. And so as we pray for Israel, let's pray that God would open up the eyes of the Israel, of the, uh, of the Jew and the Arab. That's what that, that region needs. Pray for Iraq and this terrible turmoil with uh, this terrorist group and many of our military again probably have to redeploy to places that they were at you know five six seven years ago and then as I was home on the border just this humanitarian crisis that's going on on the southwest border with illegal immigration and friends I would I would I would urge us not to yeah we need to think about the political implications of it and believe me like anybody else I am as frustrated as you can possibly be with our government, our administration, how I think that they have horrible ulterior, ulterior motives in all of this. I, I get all that. I am not, I'm not, I'm, I'm with you on that. But friends, at the end of the day, it's, it's little kids like being dropped off at bus stops, you know, and, and, and it's just a debate on the news. And these are little boys and girls, you know, that, and so let's pray, let's pray, like, like pray, pray for our nation. And, and then, And then as we get into this chapter, which is God judging a wicked city, I think it's just appropriate, isn't it? So let's let's pray and ask the Lord to move in each of these situations and then turn our attention to this text. Well, Father, we come to you today uh, and we need a certain sober-mindedness to even get up in the morning. We do pray And we can pray because of what Jesus has done on the cross. 
We know that you hear our prayers through him. We pray for the Middle East. We pray for the peace of Israel. We pray for these terrorist groups that would threaten the existence of Israel, that they would be thwarted. But we pray that Israel would not put their hope in their Jewishness, but that they would turn and trust in Christ. And we pray the same for these Arab nations, that you, by your miraculous sovereign grace, would open the eyes of many of these people on both sides, and that they would trust in you, their creator. We pray for our military, which is stretched so thin. Soldiers in this room have been deployed numerous times and been in harm's way and may now have to go back to this region that was secured years ago and now seems to be falling apart and is being ravaged by this horrible, evil, wicked, satanic group. Lord, we almost don't know what to pray, but have mercy and give our military leaders wisdom and thwart these evil men. And we pray for these little boys and girls that are being dropped off at bus stops in my hometown. And it's easy for our hearts to be calloused, to be frustrated with our government, and I think righteously so. But it's easy for us to lose sight of these children. So Lord, do something there. I, I, I don't know what, but do something. These churches on the border, churches in my hometown, churches in San Diego, churches in Yuma, Arizona, and in uh, El Paso, Texas. God, would you in your kind providence use this somehow to Bring the gospel to these people. And, and now as we turn our attention to this text, this is, God, this is so weighty. Like, this is a real story where you judged a wicked city. And it is only by your grace and your mercy and your patience that you do not do the same to us. So, Lord, would you put ammonia, spiritual ammonia, under our spiritual noses? And as we read this text today, would we wake up to the glorious reality of salvation and to the horror of judgment? And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is a long chapter, and I'm going to move through it as quickly as I can. And so I'm going to just give you my outline up front so you can kind of frame your mind as you listen. I think this chapter, chapter 19, breaks into four logical parts. The first, verses 1 through 9, is the depravity of man. We're going to look at, at these first nine verses. Then secondly, we see this beautiful picture of the mercy of God in saving Lot in verses 10 through 23. 
And then after that, we're going to look at the sobering and swift and just judgment of God in verses 24 through 29. And then we'll, we'll wrap it up by looking at, in verses 30 through 38, the horrible consequences of disobeying God. Well, let me start reading Genesis 19, verse 1. The two angels, these two angels that read, we read about last week and that Will explained coming and meeting with God, meeting with Abraham, these two angels came to Sodom in the evening. They're coming disguised as, as men in human appearance. And Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, Please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. And they said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Now we've got some children in the room and so I don't think I need to go much further. But friends, do you understand that what they meant by that is they didn't want them to come to their bingo party, right? It's not, it's not an invitation to be part of their community group. They wanted to assault these men in the worst kind of perverted way. Verse 6, Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Verse 8, Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge? Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. Oh, wow. Let's stop there and consider what's going on in these nine verses and the utter depravity of the population of, of Sodom. First, I think we need to consider just kind of remember how Lot got to Sodom in the first place. Remember in Genesis chapter 13 and 14, when Abram at that time, still Abram and not Abraham, was after God had spoken to him and called him in Genesis chapter 12, now is with his nephew Lot. And their flocks and their herdsmen were starting to grow. And so Abraham calls Lot, and because there were starting to be a feud between their people, says, let's kind of divide it up here. You choose. And Lot sort of selfishly chose the better land for himself, this land near Sodom. And so, so what got him in this situation in the first place near these wicked people and this wicked culture was, was greed. 
But I don't think that we can necessarily draw from this and say, well, you know, the, the moral of the story is, is that Lot should have never gone to Sodom in the first place. Because throughout the rest of the Bible, we see this pattern of God through his providence putting his people in wicked places for the display of his glory and his light. And so I don't think that we should interpret from this, oh, Lot should have never went to Sodom in the first place and we should just retreat sort of into our own little bunker and close ourselves off from the world. Because now we see here in the first verse of chapter 19 that Lot was sitting at the gate of Sodom. That's significant. That means that Lot was a judge. He was a, in a position of authority, kind of like maybe... Uh, we might sort of, in our mind, think of it as like he's one of the city council members. And he's there in a position of authority. He's been living in this city now for a while. And he's risen to prominence. But I think the thing that's striking here is what is Lot's influence? What impact is it having on this city of Sodom? Apparently, it's not been a good, it's not been effective in any way. Because this city is debased and it's wicked and Lot knows this. Lot's position, Lot's problem was, is not so much that he was in Sodom, but that Sodom was in Lot. And here he is in this position of authority where God has put him to have an impact and he is squandering that influence. And then we see the wickedness of Sodom and the cowardice of Lot. Friends, again, I don't need to go into much detail, but just the depravity of this culture, that they would see some outsider. And this would be completely against the norms of culture in that time, a, a, a visiting sojourner or a stranger that comes to your city gates or to your doors should be welcomed in. I mean, travel and the climate was so harsh and difficult, and, and th th there was this custom that you would welcome people in and, and be a respite or a shelter for a sojourner. And this culture had turned so wicked that the first thing that they want to do to a person that is new is to absolutely assault them in the worst, most perverted sort of way. The sexual perversion of Sodom had run amok and Lot knew it. And yet, even though he was trying to stand against the wickedness of his culture, he was in a sense sort of cowering behind it so in one sense, Lot is kind of righteous in a way. In fact, the Bible in the New Testament in 2 Peter chapter 2 actually calls Lot righteous, which is sort of mind-blowing. Remember how we talked a couple weeks ago about the righteous disposition of God towards Abraham? Remember how, you know, in Hebrews it talked about Abraham never wavered, and we look back on it and say, wait a minute, Abraham wavered a lot. But how God looks at his people, he doesn't, he doesn't kind of sort of, you know, count our mistakes against us. He, he, when we're in Christ, he counts us as righteous. Well, even sorry, cowardly Lot is called righteous in the New Testament in 2 Peter 2. I mean, that's incredibly encouraging. But Lot is, is, is still just cowering down in, in, in a despicable, I mean, it's, it's almost hard to read. To appease the wickedness of his culture is offering up his two daughters to appease the wickedness of Sodom and these men in Sodom. Friends, it's easy for us to look at this chapter in the Old Testament and say, wow, that doesn't make it to the Sunday school coloring sheet very often, right? Do you have, did you have flannel graph 
of the men in Sodom. You know, the little felt board thing? I did. I grew up in a church where we did that. I loved it. I'm not, I'm not busting on it. You, know, you stick a pin in Moses' eye because the felt doesn't really <laughs> adhere anymore. And so, you know, you've got to pin them up on the board. This story doesn't usually make it into the felt board or the coloring sheets. And it's easy for us to sort of, you know, being a modern man, sort of think, oh, well, gosh, this is just a wicked story, these people. But friends, we've just put sort of veneers of sophistication on our wickedness, haven't we? I mean, come on. We live in a culture where sexual sin and perversion is the norm. We look at Lot and we say, oh, he's offering up his daughters. How wicked. But we live in a culture where very likely there are men in this room who would cower, at, who would shriek and whore at that because they have a daughter and couldn't imagine offering up their daughter in that way. And that same man, maybe later this afternoon, may download pornography on his computer and be a sort of piece in the machine that grows a culture of the objectification of women. And we're just kind of okay with this. We have a culture where sex trafficking isn't something that happens in Thailand or Vietnam. It happens in the streets of Atlanta and Columbus. We have a culture where thousands and thousands of babies in the womb, their lives are being snuffed out and we're labeling it as a progressive women's right to choose, except for all of the little women that are in the womb who don't get a right to choose, not to mention the boys that are murdered as well. And we have a government, friends, that is actively, an administration that is actively trying to coerce Christian businesses to violate their conscience and cover birth control pills that scientifically proven at times may induce an abortion. So, so we have a government that could cover that in other ways, but is intentionally going after Christian businesses to violate their conscience so that they're forced to cover abortion-inducing pills. Praise God, the Supreme Court, by the slimmest of margins, uh, rejected that satanic legislation. But friends, this is the world we live in. We live in a modern-day Sodom. And friends, don't, look, I don't want this to be just red meat to the, you know, to the Fox News crowd. Look, I'm going to put my cards on the table. I am, I am so conservative. I'm off the charts on the right. But, that, but, but, but here's the problem with being like, politically conservative. A lot of people in this region, in the Bible Belt South, think that they're okay with God because they're political conservatives. Friends, you are not justified by your conservatism politically. Okay, so I'm just going to throw that out there so you don't send me some nasty email later on today. All right. But I also want to say that our government, our president and his policies are wicked. And friends, this comes not from a desire, a political desire, it just comes from a, a Christian biblical perspective. And friends, in 2008 when Barack Obama was elected, there was a large part of me that rejoiced. Praise God. 
that the absolute wickedness of racism to some degree was, 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 was 40 years ago, we would have never imagined that an African-American could be. So friends, do not, do not weave into what I'm saying here as any political thing. There's nothing political here, and there's nothing against any particular set of people, friends. I, I want, but what I'm saying is, is that we live in a wicked city, a wicked state, a wicked country with wicked leaders by and large. And here's the indicting thing, is that for the most part, most Christians, maybe many Christians in America, are kind of indifferent to it, will float through life, fussing at each other, hopping from church to church, being mad because we didn't sing our favorite song or because we don't get this or that. Friends, May we not be people like that. May we be earnest, broken-hearted missionaries to our culture. Now, let me, let me take a, a hard right turn and not kind of lift this up a little bit and say, friends, I don't want in this, 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 this sort of convicting reality of the world that we live in and maybe our reaction to it, I do not want you to think of me and what I'm saying is like chicken little. You know, I think that's a terrible mindset for Christians to get in. Kind of, oh, the sky is falling. It's terrible. Oh, the sky is falling. Oh, America. I don't think that's a helpful attitude, okay? Because I think that the Bible points us in another direction, a sort of sober-minded optimism to know that as despicable as our modern-day Sodom may be, that God is in control. And friends, I know the end of the story. Jesus wins. Jesus has won, and his victory, as Robert read this morning, and that's why we chose that portion of the statement of faith to read this morning, to keep our eyes above the waters, that he will come and finally and fully set everything straight. Friends, there's this, beautiful, there's this beautiful passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Let me, let me read it. I think it's so important for us to, to see and to, to just sort of live in this dual reality. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. This, this would be the type of thing that you write on a card and you stick it in your dashboard. And don't look at it when you're in traffic because I don't want, you, I don't want this to be like you know, the equivalent of texting for you. You're reading a verse and you rear in the person in front of you. So, so maybe put it somewhere else. But 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. This is for Christians that live in a modern day Sodom. Verse 14, 2 Corinthians 2. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many peddlers of God's word, But as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. What's that saying? It's saying that Christians are marching towards the consummation of the sure and certain victory of Christ. And as they are the aroma of Christ in a modern day Sodom, God in his sovereign redemptive plan is using the earnest 
witness of Christians to either bring those of his people that he has before the foundations of the earth set his love on to life or for those that he has not to death. Friends, that is God's business. It is our business to be sober-minded, to not be overtaken with the wickedness of our age, but to march in broken-hearted, earnest, optimistic joy towards our sure and final victory in Jesus. So we can listen to the talk radio and watch the news and not be grumpy, pessimistic Christians because we know that we are marching towards the consummation of our victory. I pray that that's like ammonia for us, like a smelling salt underneath our nose. And I pray that it would do us more than to just have a theological category for that. I pray that it would move some of you in this room to come to our Wednesday night midweek fellowship where Wayne is doing an excellent job of helping us be better personal evangelists. And I pray that we wouldn't just be, uh, you know, uh, disgusted by what's going on at the abortion clinic at Rosemont Drive. I pray that Christians in this room would be mobilized to go and pray and to join some of the faithful Christians in this congregation who are there every week praying to help counsel and turn back women. Pray that maybe somebody in this room might, might be moved to, to be a foster parent as they look at just the crisis of children in our world. Well, let's keep going. So that's the depravity of man. We are in our own natural state apart from God depraved. But now we see the glorious mercy of God in the salvation of Lot. Let's read again in verse 10. But the men, at this time it's referring to the angels, reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. So the two angels grabbing Lot by the scruff of the neck, bringing him back in the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place. For the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his son-in-laws to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up! Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand. This is the angels now. They seized him and his wife and the, his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, 
and have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. There's a couple things that I want us to see here in this really stunning uh, paragraph in this beautiful truth of the mercy of God in saving Lot. First, I want you to see that, friends, clearly it is the Lord that takes the initiative. God is about to snatch Lot by the scruff of the neck, not because Lot was proving himself faithful. Kwame prayed it so beautifully at the beginning of our service in our call to worship as he read from 1 Corinthians 1. God is about to snatch Lot from the fire, not because of Lot's initiative, but because of his grace and initiative. Listen to these words from Jesus in John chapter 6 about this humbling but glorious truth of the initiative of God in salvation. John chapter 6, verse 37. Jesus is in a, in a dispute, an argument, a discussion with the religious leaders. And he says in verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. Now listen to verse 44 the humbling and glorious reality of our complete dependence upon the initiating grace of God. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent, him, sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Friends, we need to see clearly, and this brings great hope to me, because I know that that I wasn't saved because I was better than anybody else or because I was smarter or stronger or had more faith. I was saved because God grabbed me by the scruff of the neck. So whether or not you were a, 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 a meth addict or whether you were a good little church kid, God saved you in the same way. He opened your blind eyes and he gave your heart life so that you could see him and he snatched you from the judgment that is to come. Friends, do you realize that? That this chapter isn't just about the real historical event of Sodom so that we can say, oh wow, that Old Testament picture of God is sort of scary. Thank God we live now. No. Friends, this is a picture. This is a temporary historical event meant to point towards a coming eternal reality of God's judgment. And God snatches Lot by his initiative. We see also, and I think this is glorious, is that the Lord saves Lot 
despite his weak faith. Like, isn't that sort of, have you noticed that's a recurring theme that comes through? You know, Abraham wavers, Lot. What did Lot, verse 16, I mean, the angels urgently, come on! Like, you know, the, the clouds are starting to, like, you know, fireballs are starting to gather in the heavens. Verse 16, Lot lingers. Come on, like, let's go. I am about to destroy this city. Lot lingers. After they had snatched him by the scruff of the neck, pulled him in the door, and caused the hundreds of men that were outside of the door to be blind. Wouldn't that be a sign that something urgent is about to happen? That doesn't happen every day. An unruly mob does not usually beat at your door asking to know your visitors. And then those visitors don't reach out behind the door, grab you by the scruff of the neck, bring you inside, cause those wicked men to be blind. That should have been a smelling salt for Lot. And he still says, I mean, I don't know. Can't we just think? And then after they convince him to go, he negotiates for another place. At that point, blind, wicked mob, angels urgent, fireballs brewing in the heavens. That's actually not in the text. I'm just going to add. I'm sorry. Don't, don't, that, that's not in the text. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said that. At that point, I'm just going to get into reception mode. I will do whatever you say. Not only did he linger, now he's negotiating. No, I can't go to the countryside. I'm, can I go to this little city over there? Friends, I find this strangely encouraging because God does not say it a lot. Oh, you lingered, sorry, boom, you're smoked. What, you're going to try and negotiate with me now, right, when I'm trying to put you on the boat to get you out of this flood? Boom, you're smoked. No, God is gracious with doubting, negotiating Lot just like he is with you and me. Friends, that is super encouraging. The Lord saves Lot despite his weak faith. And friends, I would just say this about lingering. You know, a lot of times, um, and I, I, I actually think this is a good way to handle it sometimes because you don't know what tomorrow may hold. But maybe some of you grew up in a kind of a hellfire and brimstone um, church. And you just kind of rolled your eyes at the visiting evangelist who would come in. And at the altar call, they start playing the piano. And it's been emotional. He's been dripping in sweat, you know. And, the, you know, they turn the air conditioner off. for the revi- It's in a revival tent, you know. It's in the summer. They picked August as the month to have the revival. And you're sweating. And he's been screaming and spitting. And there's not this sort of distance between you, and so I spit too, but you just can't see it, you know, because you're further away. And then he just pulls out that manipulative technique at the end, you know. He's trying to get some little wayward teenager, and he says, you know, you may leave this place tonight. You're not promised tomorrow. You may be, you know, struck by lightning, run over by a bus. Well, that's true. That's true. But you know what I think is even more sad? Is that maybe some of you are in this room and the Holy Spirit's speaking to you right now. And you're thinking, you know what, that's me. I linger. Maybe I'm a young soldier. Or I'm a young adult, a college kid. And I know the way I need to be living. 
I know I need to be not doing that. I've got kind of a secret life going on here. Or maybe you're a young father, and you are playing with fire with some other woman. And, and you're convicted, you're pretty miserable about it, and it's caused you to sort of be on the edge of Christian community and even life at Crosspoint, and you've got everybody fooled. And you kind of, right now, your heart is beating fast, and you realize that you're, you're like, that's me, I'm lingering. And, and here's what you say to yourself. You say, uh, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to figure this out eventually. Once I get through this training at Fort Benning, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start living for God. And once I, I'm going to, you know, okay, I'm gonna, just going to have a little bit of fun here, and then I'm going to really start living for God. And here's the, here's the thing that's almost more sad than you being hit by a bus when you walk out of this room, is that maybe God's going to let you live for another 60 or 70 years, but he's going to give you over to the hardness of your heart. Friends, do not think that repentance is something that you can muster up when you are ready. Don't say, oh, tomorrow or the next day or after college or when I get through with this time in my life, then I'll start getting serious about God. Friends, repentance is not yours to generate. Repentance is a gift. It's not yours. Do not, the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4, today if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Why is this in the, why is verse 16 there, but he lingered? Why is that written there? I think it is written, as Paul says in Romans 15, for our instruction, for our warning that somebody in this room on July 13th, 2014, in Columbus, Georgia, who is dabbling with sin, who is wanting to go back, it's kind of one leg in Sodom, one leg in the kingdom, to say, today, do not negotiate. Don't linger. Don't harden your heart. Repent. Before you leave this room, young husband, if you are trapped in some secret sin, before you leave this room, do not leave without coming to a brother, somebody that you know that you can confess that sin. Do not let the sun go down on your lingering. Don't do it. Don't do it. (laughs) And I have been there. I've been there. And by God's mercy, he snatched me by the scruff of my neck, not because I mustered up repentance, but because of his mercy, he gave it to me. Friends, you are not promised that day, but you hear it now. Do not linger. The Lord is mighty to save. And how does he save? He takes all of our unrighteousness. He takes all of our sin. He takes all of our wickedness. He takes all of our cowardice. And the punishment, the coming wrath that should be ours, he places it on Jesus. Friends, this is the gospel. This is what Jesus has done. Jesus has bore the sulfur and the fire coming down for heaven from heaven that should have been ours. Jesus on the cross bore a punishment that was far greater than being burned by fire from heaven. Jesus bore the punishment that was sure and certain eternal separation from God forever for all those that would not linger, that when they hear these words of truth would know that Jesus has satisfied God's just and righteous wrath, has absorbed it, has extinguished it, and turned it into favor for all those that will not linger, they will turn from this world and run to Jesus as their only refuge. Friends, that is the gospel. Do that now.
I don't care if you've been a member of this church for 10 years, which would be impossible because we've only been a church for nine years. But even today, if you have been fooling us and you've, you're finding right now that maybe you're not truly hearing the gospel and today for the first time you heard it, don't let social pride stand between you and eternal judgment. Run to God right now. And if you're a visitor and you're like, oh man, I accepted this invitation, and sure enough, that knucklehead's just a screamer like the rest of them. Well, yeah, maybe. But friends, this is truth. Like, do you see, that this is not just me being mad at the world. Like, this is truth, friends. There is something worse than death. There's something worse than a life here that's not optimal. And it is being separated eternally from a holy and righteous God. And that's why Genesis 19 and this story is in the Bible to through the centuries warn God's people of something far greater than temporary fire from heaven. Well, let me keep going. Let's wrap this up. In verse 24 now, in these few verses, we see the swift and just judgment of God. Then the Lord, verse 24, rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground but Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Friends, do not look back. It's not because, just because tomorrow's not promised you, but because what would be just as worse is that you may get tomorrow, but you may not get repentance. Do not look back. Verse 27. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, listen to this, be encouraged by this sentence. Mom and dad who are praying for a rebellious adult child. Remember Genesis 18? Will preached on last week, where Abraham pleaded before the Lord that he would save just 50 righteous? What about 45 righteous? Would you save? And there's just one righteous. And God heard Abraham's prayers, and God in his sovereign mercy used the prayers of Abraham to be the means by which he saved Lot. So listen to the second part of verse 29. God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. God, in his eternal sovereign mercy, used the prayers of Abraham as the means by which he brought salvation to Lot. Friends, as we look at this paragraph, we struggle with the idea of wrath and how it relates to God's love. We could spend weeks thinking about and unpacking this truth. Let me just read you a, just a sentence or two from Don Carson, excellent modern theologian, New Testament, Old Testament theologian, professor, 
in his very helpful and short book called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God, he says this, God's wrath is not an implacable, blind rage. However emotional it may be, it is an entirely reasonable and willed response to the offenses against his holiness. Friends, the people that look at the judgment episodes in the Bible and say that they can't believe in a God who would exercise wrath like that prove that they don't truly understand God's love. God's love, in order for it to truly be loving, is upheld by his holiness. And so we have to come to grips with realizing that when we don't, when we are rubbed the wrong way by God's wrath, the real problem is that we don't understand the holiness of God and the horror of sin. Much more we could say about that. But let's keep reading in verse 30 and see the horrible consequences of disobeying God. Now Lot went up to Zoar, up out of Zoar, and lived in the hills with his two daughters. So even the city that he negotiated with, now he's kind of, you know, gone somewhere else. For he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, so that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Friends, what a sad and horrible paragraph. I I mean, it's almost hard to read. We see that for some in Sodom, judgment came quickly. And for some, it came slower thereafter. And we see these horrible consequences of disobeying God. But friends, here's the, here's the stunning thing about this really hard-to-read paragraph here at the end of this sobering chapter is that even in the midst of this despair and a paragraph that is almost, it, you just almost feel dirty reading it, is that still we see a glimmer of gospel hope amidst the despair. Go back to verse 37, second from the last verse in the chapter. Wicked, horrible scene of incest. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. Fast forward hundreds of years 
to the Old Testament book of Ruth. Ruth, who was a Moabitess. She was a Gentile that this Jewish man Boaz redeemed. And this lady that is the offspring of this horrible event, Ruth, becomes the bride of this Jewish man, Boaz in Ruth, this surprising case of God's redemption of his people in this beautiful picture of the gospel in Ruth that we went through a couple years ago. And then fast forward to Matthew chapter one, verses five and six, where we read the genealogy of Jesus. Matthew five verses, I'm sorry, Matthew one verses five and six, going through the line of the, the, of the genealogy of Jesus, verse five, and, and Solomon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, who by, by the way was a prostitute, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king. And after David, then through David comes Jesus. And so Ruth, who is a Moabitess, is the offspring of this child named Moab, who was the result of this wickedly sinful relationship between this daughter and this father. Friends, what am I saying? I'm saying that even out of horrific despair, God can redeem even the worst of situations. So nobody in this room can say, oh, well, you know, this is just kind of the way it's been. This is the lot that I have been, no pun intended. This is the lot that I have been cast. I'm just, this is just the way I am. Because even out of this utter, maybe the, one of the most wicked, wicked chapters in the Bible, we see God giving us this glimmer of hope and saying that my arm is not too short and even the most wicked of people I save. Nobody is beyond the reach of God's grace, not even the great, 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 great grandchild of this wicked union between a father and daughter who becomes the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus. Ah, friends, grace, grace. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Lord, this is uh, a tough chapter, to say the least. And this is why, uh, well, Father, thank you for giving us the conviction that we just need to preach through the Bible because otherwise I would be tempted to skip this chapter. But Lord, reading a chapter like this reminds me that our greatest need is not motivational techniques on how to be happier, not seven steps on how to conquer anger or be more productive at work. Not that those things are bad or helpful. Certainly there's a place for that type of instruction. But our greatest need, God, is to flee the wrath that is to come. So there's two types of people in this room, Father. There's people that are trusting in Christ and they are safe. They are eternally secure. They have been drawn to you by your Holy Spirit and they have turned away from Sodom. They've turned away from sin and they've trusted in Jesus. But Lord, we need to be reminded of what you've done and we need to be reminded of what the world is facing so that it would snap us out of our selfishness and our petty little church fights and that we would be people that just are, 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 have a, 
a, a seriousness and earnestness about us. God, we are, we are people that care nothing about our preferences, that, that care nothing about our comfort because there's something worse that awaits our friends and loved ones and neighbors that don't know Jesus than just a less than optimal life. So God, there's some of us in this room that just need to be stirred with that reality again. And we need to be reminded of, of our salvation so that we can more earnestly and deeply worship you. And then there's another group, Lord, here that, that needs to be warned. It needs to hear these words for the first time. And they need to not linger and they need to not turn back. And they need to flee your righteous just wrath and their only hope is not that they can delay their spiritual plan and in a couple of years settle down into maturity not that they can manage their little internet affair on the side but their only hope is running to Christ who saves even the worst of people So Lord, would you, would you move in both groups for the glory of your name, for the salvation of the lost, for the good of your people, amen.